Welcome to the Wellsteading Podcast. This is episode 318. Today is September 9th, 2020. I'm your host, John Pugliano. I'm also the founder and money manager at investablewealth.com. And today our topic is going to be the long-awaited listener question episode. We're going to cover, I don't know, 8, 9, 10, 12 questions, whatever I can get in. Here we go. First question is about the oil sector and oil stocks, pipeline, master limited partnerships. Going to group all this into, into one category of you know, basically fossil fuels, whether we're talking about pipelines or gasoline companies, exploratory oil companies, natural gas. You know, these are all fitting into the same general category right now. And the prices on these stocks and these companies are significantly depressed. I personally think they're way oversold. I put a video up on YouTube, I don't know, maybe a couple of weeks ago, a month ago. I think it was entitled, Will Oil Stocks Recover? Check that out. It's a two or three minute video. It is a format that I'm trying to go to more over at YouTube where I'll just pick a particular topic, put up a chart, and briefly hit the highlights of maybe a moving average or some technical aspect of the chart. Bottom line on all this is that I do think that the energy sector is way oversold. Right now, there's a lot of ESG-type investors that are avoiding fossil fuels. And while that's a fashionable trade right now, I think it's really nonsensical for the future. Yes, there's no doubt that we are moving away from a fossil fuel and a carbon-based energy economy, but we're nowhere near getting rid of things like oil and natural gas. And, and in fact, one of the reasons that the energy sector has been able to clean up the environment so much in the last 10 years or so is because the price of natural gas has just drastically come down, mostly because of fracking and shale oil type drilling. But that has brought the world price of natural gas and particularly the price of natural gas in the United States so low that most electrical generation turbines now are done with natural gas instead of coal. The natural gas is incredibly price competitive and it burns infinitely cleaner than coal. So I actually think that things like natural gas and those type fossil fuels are a solution to our environmental problems, not a detriment. And so, yes, overall, I do like the energy sector. I don't think it's going away anytime soon. I do have some of the big major oil producers in my portfolio, things like ExxonMobil and Chevron. And, and while there are always risks associated with them, you know, ExxonMobil in particular, there's talk of them maybe cutting their dividend. Well, I can live with the dividend cut. I mean, if you look at the dividend on it right now, it is extremely high anyways. I think the stock can weather the storm on a dividend cut. My concern with the energy sector, and this goes to a lot of people's questions about owning very speculative natural gas or oil companies or these you know, companies that are referred to as penny stocks, I just avoid those completely. ExxonMobil, Chevron, yeah, the price can go down, but I think they're going to be in business. Some little energy company, I avoid those things like the plague. They're susceptible to all types of fraud and pump and dump and most of those companies have significantly more debt than they're probably ever going to be able to pay off. So I just, I just stay out of that market altogether. And in fact, that takes us to our next question about companies that become delisted. There's been a lot of that going on lately. And so a number of you have asked questions about what does it mean when a company is delisted and you know what's that all about? Well, delisting occurs when a company gets dropped from a major stock exchange or one of their affiliate market organizations. 
So they're easy to sell, they're easy to buy, and that's what we call that they have good liquidity. A delisted stock is generally one of these smaller micro-cap stocks or a company that has a very limited market capitalization or, or a small stock float. So it's we're talking about just a really small company that maybe you know, collectively, if you added up all their market capitalization, all the stocks that are issued out there, if you added them all up and you wanted to buy that company, you know, they're trading for a few million dollars or maybe even a few hundred million dollars. They're just really small little fry companies compared to a midsize or a large cap company that would be listed in the Dow Jones Industrial Average or the S&P 500. So these little companies, especially these little micro-micro companies, they're very susceptible to pump and dump operations. That's where some stock promoter you know, goes out on a marketing campaign and tells everybody that, hey, you should invest in this. You know, the stock is going to appreciate 10,000% and you can get in for just 25 cents a share. These type companies are not necessarily fraudulent, but they're highly, highly, highly speculative. If you go out and invest in these really small little penny stocks or these micro, micro cap stocks, I think you're just leaving yourself open to fraudulent practices or other type of shenanigans that you're not going to encounter by investing in larger, more established companies. And so that takes us to the whole delisting question. A lot of these really small companies, once their trading volume gets too small or once their price gets below a certain amount, usually like around a dollar, then they're delisted from the major exchanges. And so if you have a company that starts out at, say, $20, and it gets into trouble and then all of a sudden that price drops below $1 and it gets dropped from a major exchange, then that's what's called delisted and it goes on to a smaller exchange. They're usually referred to as over-the-counter exchanges and the liquidity on those stocks dry up, meaning that there's very few people that want to buy that stock. The spreads that are offered on those stocks, the, the difference between the bid price and the asked price, which may be just a few cents on a major exchange, could be 50 cents or a dollar on these off exchanges. And the fees and commissions associated with selling a delisted stock could be significantly more as well. So again, this is reasons that I avoid these small companies, small little micro caps or penny cap stocks. They run the risk of not only having the price collapse, but then they get delisted and that further drives down the opportunity that you have to sell the stock. Or if that doesn't happen, you get into the next listener question, which is, what is a reverse split? And incidentally, this is a, a real-world example, and the reason the questions have come in on this is that back in April when the price of oil collapsed and when the futures market briefly went negative on the price of oil, an ETF that tracks oil with the ticker symbol USO, well, the price on that ETF collapsed and went down below $1 a share. And so to keep the ETF listed on a major exchange, they had to have a major reverse split. I think it was something like 18 to 1, meaning that they were taking away shares rather than creating new shares. So if you had previously owned 18 shares of this ETF, once they did the reverse split, now you only had one share. So let's say you had purchased this ETF when it was selling for $20 or $30 a share. The price collapsed. It went down to $0.50. Cents. Your 18 shares which at $30 a share would have mean you had $540 invested in that ETF. Once the price broke down to $0.50, cents, your investment went down to a total value of only $9. But remember, it's now trading below a dollar a share. It's going to get delisted from a major exchange. 
The way the ETF avoids that, so they take your 18 shares, they reissue you one share, and your previous 18 shares that were worth $9 at 50 cents a piece, now that one share has a market price of $9. And so while you're out a great deal of money, at least the ETF is still going to be listed on a major exchange. It'll have liquidity, and hopefully you'll be able to sell it and get your $9 back. Okay, so onto a lighter topic, here's a question that everybody wants to always get an answer for, and it's should you invest in a traditional retirement account, whether it be a traditional 401k or a traditional IRA, or should you take the Roth option? I don't want to belabor the point on this one because it's a question I answer all the time, and it really comes down, I think, in a lot of ways to personal preference. Personally, I like the Roth option because it's a difference between tax-deferred versus tax-free. The traditional retirement account defers your taxes. You invest in it with pre-tax dollars. So for example, if you contribute $6,000 to a traditional retirement account, that $6,000 goes in pre-tax, meaning that you're not paying any taxes on it this year. And then as your investments grow, you're not charged any capital gains taxes as long as it stays in that retirement account. But when you go into retirement, and you start taking distributions from that traditional retirement account, you then get taxed on every dollar that you take out, and you're taxed at whatever your ordinary income rate is at that particular time. So the theory is, though, is that now you're retired, you're not working, you're going to be in a lower tax bracket, your overall tax rate is lower than it would have been when you were working. Now, the difference with a Roth account, and this is whether it's a Roth IRA or a Roth 401k, is the money goes in after tax, so you don't get a deduction in the year you earn that money. And then that Roth money, when it's in the retirement account, just like the the traditional IRA, it continues to grow. You don't pay any capital gains taxes as long as the money stays in that retirement account. But then when you take it out and take a contribution in retirement, the money comes out totally tax-free. So it's not tax-deferred, it's tax-free. So for my money, I always go for the tax-free because I'm a long-term investor. And I also approach this from the viewpoint that I plan on having more money in the future than I have today. And so I'm not necessarily going to be in a lower tax bracket 20 years from now than I am today because I plan to have more money in 20 years. And all that retirement savings is going to be generating an even larger income than I'm making while I'm currently working. So I'd rather put the money in now, pay the taxes on it, let it grow tax-free, and then withdraw it sometime in the future without having to pay any taxes on it at all. This system works best if you start contributing when you're younger because the money has longer to grow before you're going to access it. Here's another reoccurring question that I get all the time. The question is, what book should I read that's going to teach me about investing? I don't think there is any one individual way to invest. And it's not that I'm against reading books. Uh, During the first probably 20 years or so of my investing experience, I read about every book that I could get my hands on. And that's really the the biggest reason that I'm skeptical that any one book is going to teach you, you know, how to invest like Warren Buffett. And it isn't that the books aren't accurate or that they're telling you something wrong. It's just that there's no one way to make money. And it has more to do with you than it does with the trading system. So even from the perspective of a basic investing book that you should read, I don't know. Listen, the libraries are full of them. Go to the library, go to the bookstore, go to Amazon, read through some things, 
See what resonates and works for you, and then read that book. Start there. Oh, here's another classic question. When should you sell your stock? Well, the biggest thing to remember with this question is that the market doesn't care why you're selling the stock. Okay, start from that premise. The person on the other end of that trade, they have no interest in you or your position. They just want to buy that stock at that particular price, right? They don't care if you're selling because you are taking a profit or if you're selling it at a loss. They could care less why you're selling that stock. And, and the reason I make a big deal out of this is, is that too many times as traders, the reason we get into trouble is that we personalize the trade. Okay, then as far as why should you do it or when should you do it, well, it depends on what you're trying to achieve. Maybe you're just trying to take profits. And the reason you would be taking those profits is that you think that in the future, that stock is either going to be worth less money than it is now, or it's just hit a plateau and it's not going to continue to appreciate at the rate that you'd like it to. And really, more than anything, it has to do with your forecast of where that stock is going in the future. Another personal consideration you may have is the tax consequences. If this is in a retirement account, well, that's either going to be tax-deferred or tax-free, so it doesn't matter. But if it's in a taxable brokerage account and you've held that stock for less than 366 days, then you're going to have to pay an ordinary tax rate on the gains on that stock. And so you may want to defer selling it, or at least selling a portion of the, that proceeds, until you've held it for at least one year, because then you'll be taxed at a more favorable capital gains rate. So oftentimes, tax considerations are your biggest reason for you know, taking a gain or a loss. You know, final thought on when should you sell a stock, and, and this really comes back to short-term trading or swing trading, and that's when a stock has run up a great deal over a short period of time. You may want to sell it just to lock in that profit and move on. So for example, let's say you own a stock, and some good news comes out about that stock, and overnight it jumps up 18%. Well, you just have to ask yourself, what do you think the probability of that stock is, you know, being worth more in the future? Is it going to hold that 18% gain or is it going to peter out and the hype is going to go away and it's going to drop back down? And again, you, you don't know. You're speculating. But you may want to say, hey, it, it just bounced up 18%. A bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. I'm going to take that profit and move on. Something that I tend to look at when I buy stocks is that a lot of times a stock will run up maybe 25 or 30%. And then it'll start to either pull back down, you know, we call that consolidation, or maybe it'll just plateau before it goes on to make another high. That 25 to 30% run up tends to be a good sweet spot to take a profit. So when you're using technical analysis and you're looking at a chart, you know, you'll notice that usually things just don't go straight up. It's a sawtooth type pattern, a switchback. Stock will go up, it'll pull back. It'll go up, it'll pull back. And if you look at those gains when the stock moves up, a lot of times they're in that you know, 25 to 30% range. So that can be kind of a rule of thumb or a gauge for you as to when you might want to take short-term profits on a stock that you're looking at swing trading. Okay, next question is about protective puts. I've received some inquiries about, you know, people asking what is a protective put, and then some other people have asked why I don't specifically talk about protective puts. I think a lot of the timing of this question is being driven by you know, the volatility of the markets, and a lot of people are looking at preserving their gains, and certainly a protective put is one way to do that. Now, a protective put, as the name would imply, 
It's designed to protect your underlying position. It's sort of like a short-term life insurance policy on a stock. It's protecting the stock at a particular price that you buy into, just like your term life insurance would have a fixed amount of money that it would pay you if you died prematurely over the term of that policy. So for example, we're coming into the election in November. Maybe you're worried about market volatility between now and the election, and you have this $100 stock. You could purchase a put option to preserve your price at, you know, $100 or $97 or what, you know, whatever price you want to lock in. You could purchase a contract between now and say December 17th or whenever that options agreement would expire, but it would carry you through the turbulence of the election. The key thing to remember here is that you are purchasing it. So it's costing you a certain amount of money to buy that protection just like your term life insurance cost you a premium. I personally rarely use protective puts. I'm more likely to speculate by selling a put contract than I am on purchasing a protective put. That's a whole nother program. I won't cover that now. But just as far as my preference on protective puts, the only time I tend to use them is when I have a very speculative and high dollar amount of money concentrated in one stock or one sector. And so, for example, let's say that I wanted to take a very concentrated and a very large position in airline stocks. Now, I could do that by purchasing Delta Airlines, or I could do that by purchasing some type of a transportation or an airline-focused ETF. But let's say that I'm going to put in a large amount of money in that, because I think that over the next, say, five months, that Delta Airlines or the airline industry is going to spike up, and I think that I can get at least say, 100% return on my money. And for sake of example, let's say that I'm committing a large amount of money to this purchase because I really want to speculate and I want to have a big payday if I'm right. And so let's say I'm going to put a million dollars into that trade. Well, remember, this is a speculation. I can't predict the future. As much conviction as I may have that I think that Delta Airlines is going to go up 100% in the next five months, I could totally be wrong. And so to protect my concentrated position... I would purchase a protective put. And for sake of our example, let's just say that that would cost me 5%. Now, with the volatility of the airlines and what's going on with the COVID virus right now, a protective put for five months on Delta Airlines, uh, I don't know, I haven't looked it up, but that may cost you 25%. Right? You're probably unlikely to be able to get it for as little as 5%. But let's just say it would cost me 5%. Well, 5% of a million dollars is $50,000. And so right up front, I'm losing $50,000 immediately. But the reason I would do that is because I feel very confident that that stock is going to double in value. And if it doesn't, the most I'm going to lose is $50,000. Okay, so now I bought that stock. I have the protective put. And sometime between now and the next five months, if Delta Airlines does double in value, my million-dollar investment is now worth $2 million dollars. But remember, I don't have a million-dollar profit because I had to spend that $50,000 up front, but I'm still coming out way out ahead because I'm walking away with $950,000. And so it's a conviction trade where I think there's a high likelihood of getting a really big payday, and I know up front what my loss is going to be. That's personally how I would use a protective put. One reason that I don't use a lot of options, unless I think conditions are really going to be favorable for me, is because with options, you have to get two things right. 
you have to get the price right and you have to get the timing right. And what I mean by that is in the example I just used, I said that, you know, I think Delta Airlines is going to double in price in the next five months. And so the options contract I would buy to protect that is going to expire in five months. And so if Delta Airlines does double in price, but it doesn't double until five months and three days, then although I was right that it doubled, it didn't double within the terms of my contract. And so it's a losing trade for me. And so you have to get the timing right as well as the price. Okay, next question, and this is a real popular one too. Oftentimes you'll hear me say that I moved to cash. You know, right now I'm currently roughly 50% in cash. No, I'm really not in cash. That's just a way of saying that I'm in some type of a cash equivalent fund. Most likely it's a government guaranteed short-term money market fund or something similar that my broker would offer. If you're in a 401k plan, they're probably not going to have a cash position. You'll have some type of a money market fund or cash equivalent mutual fund or maybe a guaranteed value fund. So you're not really in cash cash, but you're in some type of a very short-term bond fund, which in a sense is what a money market fund is, that you can sell overnight and have quick access to that money. And then along those lines, a lot of people have wondered about not just putting that money into a cash equivalent fund where the interest rates are extremely low right now. I mean, they're, they're practically zero. There are alternatives to that, which are usually commercial paper that would be commercial bonds that are short term, which could have a duration of you know anywhere from, say, 90 days to maybe a year, maybe two years. An example of that would be a fund that I do like to use. It's called Mint, M-I-N-T, and it's a PIMCO ETF. I think right now they're paying over 2%, maybe two and a quarter. So you're going to get a significant better annual return on that ETF than you will in just a traditional money market fund or a cash equivalent fund. Here's the problem with that. And it doesn't happen very often, but just in recent times, it did occur. If you pull up a chart of Mint and you look at its price over the period of, you know, March, April, it actually took a pretty significant dip. I think it was down as much as maybe four, four and a half percent. And while that's not a big number for a stock, I mean, figure over that same period of time, the S&P 500 went down over 30%. But for something that's, you know, quote, safe or, or cash or cash equivalent, losing three or four or 5%, that's a big deal. And so I'm not opposed to using these type funds. In fact, I do use them quite a bit, but you do have to keep in mind, there's definite market fluctuation that can take place. And whenever you have a major credit event, those corporate bond funds are very, very susceptible to movements in short-term interest rates. Let's see, last question. No, no, we have one more. And I actually covered this under the question about what book should you read to learn how to invest. And I've received a lot of questions um, that really come under the category of terminology or, or definitions. You know, for example, like what is a price per earnings ratio? Or specific questions about what's levered cash flow or you know, large cap, small cap, what do do these terms mean? I won't go into all that today, but let me recommend this. And again, this kind of goes along with that question about what book should you read? I'd, I'd highly recommend that rather than even reading a book about investing, take your questions because these are things that you're interested in and things that you want to know specifically about. Take that specific question and either Google it or go to a website like Investopedia and look up the definition of what you're interested in. I think that's a much more iterative process of learning 
and it's going to address what you're specifically interested in at that time. And so that's going to enhance your learning because that's a real time learning process. It's not like sitting down and reading a book that has, you know, 15 chapters in it. Well, hey, that'll do it for today. Thanks for all the questions that were submitted. And as always, until the next episode, this is John Pugliano wishing you the very best returns.